As we're reading that passage of Scripture this morning, we came across a word that we don't use just probably every day in conversation. It's the word reconciliation. Now, if you're like me, other than the Bible, uh, the way that word usually comes out is in a financial sense. If you are the one that keeps track of the finances in your home, for instance, or you work in a business, you know that uh, you get statements from financial institutions that says in the last month or however often they send it out, uh, here are the transactions. You know, your bank tells you, here's record of the checks that have cleared your account. Here's the deposits we have. Here's debit transactions that you used your card on, so forth like that. And it's usually a pretty good idea to keep your own records as well, however you do that. And once a month, uh, that you take those bank statements against your personal records, and you want to make sure that they match up. But they don't always match up, do they, if you've done that before? Now, it's rarely an error with the bank, okay? And so it might be that you transpose some numbers. It might be that maybe there was a charge that showed up, you know, hope, hope you don't experience this, but, you know, fraud is happening and people are stealing identities and stuff like that. And that's why it's a good idea to keep your eye on those kind of things because you're like, whoa, whoa, I'd, they have this, but I don't have this. Where did this come from? I think. But it's the idea of, of making them match up. Well, you know, when you come to the Bible and you talk about the work of reconciliation, there's some similarities. Reconciliation is a a word that makes a statement both about the past as well as the future. And I think about that. We talk about your bank statements. Uh, it's the past. In other words, what had already happened, and the future is the way it needs to look. You might need to make some adjustments. Now, I always love it when I just, you know, use the financial software and pull it in, and I don't have to make any changes, you know, I got it right, you know, it's like that little pat, on, pat of affirmation or whatever, but uh, reconciliation when it comes to us and our relationship with God has both a past and a future focus as well. There's a move from in our past as sinners being estranged from God, and by the way, that's the way every human being is born into this world, aren't we? But then what reconciliation does is it, it changes so in the future we can be not estranged from God, but engaged with God. Now, you can't just become in, engaged with the Holy One because you're trying to be a good person. You can't just become engaged with God, our Creator, and the Sovereign of the universe because uh, you say your prayers at nighttime, because you read a Bible, you know, some of these things are all wonderful things that ought to be happening in our lives. But we need to make sure that we haven't tried to bypass a very crucial step in our salvation process. This is the essence of the prodigal, store, the prodigal son account in our Bibles. Jesus used this illustratively to describe sinners and the Heavenly Father. And you, and you, can, you can remember that, that, that story and how the son left and went into a far country. 
And so at that point in the story, he becomes estranged. But the real focus on the story is when he comes back, isn't it? He comes to himself. There's that work in his heart. He humbles himself. He's brought low. And he realizes, I want to become engaged with my father. And one of the things that I think is important to understand about that is the, the son had to do the moving. The father stayed right where he was. He was at home because that's where the son needed to come. The father didn't need to go to the son. The son needed to come to the father. But the beautifulness of that story is the father received the son with open arms. And so does our heavenly father. He receives us. He knows that we all like sheep have gone astray. We've become estranged. We're born that way. We live that way. And it's not until we come and encounter the work of the cross and Jesus Christ as our Savior and realize, I need to have my sins washed away. I need to have my sins forgiven. I need to be justified by God's grace. See, God is driven by His love to bring us back into relationship with Him. It's His love. 2 Corinthians 5.18 tells us that all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. It's very important that we don't see that we are doing the work of reconciling ourselves to God. You see, that prodigal son could have made the journey back home and not been welcomed into the home. It wasn't the journey that brought reconciliation. It was the embrace of the Father that brought reconciliation. And so God providentially worked in my life as a 12-year-old boy to make me unsettled, to make me realize my need as a sinner. But it was when I humbly bowed and prayed and asked Christ to be my Savior and I turned and received His complete work of salvation accomplished on the cross in my behalf, that I would say that I received the embrace of the Heavenly Father. I really can't even take credit for that prayer. You know, the prayer is not a magical prayer. It's not some sort of formula. If it worked that way, there would be one written out in our Bibles for us. Prayer is the invoking, the pleading with God saying, I need what you're offering to me. And all who come to Christ, He will in no wise cast out. Our going from being estranged to being engaged is all the loving work of the Father who accomplishes us this through His Son. God, it says as we continue thinking about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right after verse 18, verse 19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Now, we don't want to misinterpret that verse like some do and say, oh, God was in Christ, so that must mean Christ is not God. No, that's not what it's emphasizing there. The whole point was showing the, the diversity of the triune Godhead, that there is a Father, there is a Son, there is a Holy Spirit. 
and the focus of our being reconciled is always to the Father, but he wanted us to know that Jesus just wasn't there doing his work on the cross by himself. The Father says, I was an active participant with my Son there. I was in Christ doing that work of reconciliation. The gap between man and God is closed only because of the death of Christ on the cross. There's a huge chasm, there's a huge gulf, if you would, spiritually speaking, between us and our sinfulness and God in all of His pure attributes. And you know, I don't care what kind of moral running start you get, you're never going to be able to jump that chasm in your own efforts. Only Jesus can bridge that gap. I love what it says in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, in other words, people who are saved are described as being in Christ, actually been placed into the body of believers. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off, there's that past estrangement, right? Afar off. But notice it was a past tense. You were afar off, are, and, and it doesn't say now, but it's kind of implied there, are made nigh or near, there's the engagement, by the blood of Christ. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, and we're thinking about what this represents as far as Christ giving His body, Christ shedding His blood, that act on the cross is what accomplishes reconciliation for us reconciliation is wonderful because it really corrects what is broken by original sin that sin that first happened in the garden of eden when man the first adam disobeyed god flagrantly full knowing what he was doing and by that one man's sin the bible tells us death passed upon all men for that all men have sinned and so this reconciliation is bringing things back. Just like the, the son is being able to return to the home that was originally intended for him to be in. Reconciliation is great, but wait, there's more. Because this message today isn't really just about reconciliation, but we have to appreciate reconciliation to see what happens. Because twice in the verses we read, we saw the phrase, much more. And I don't know about you, but if someone says much more to me, my head perks up, especially if it's dessert time or something like that, you know? And I, oh, wait, okay. So wait, there's more. What is much more, we might ask? What's he talking about here? And it is the fact that we shall be saved because Jesus is alive. So as we're focusing on the resurrection today, We'd say reconciliation is the doctrine that belongs appropriately to the cross, and that has to happen for us to be saved. We understand that. But we're not fully saved from everything because every one of us that says, yes, I'm a child of God, yes, I'm putting my faith right now in the finished work of Christ, but I'm still battling sin. I'm still feeling the curse of nature, uh, you know, I've had sicknesses, I've had illnesses, my body is aging. I, I, I find myself in the midst of turmoil in relationships sometimes with other people. This certainly doesn't feel like heaven, right? 
We understand that. And the answer is that's right. So, we've been declared righteous when we were reconciled by Jesus Christ. That's, that's justification. And He sets, apart, sets us apart for a holy work in us. And someday we're going to be glorified in heaven. And that means every vestige, every element of sin, every part of the curse is going to just be evacuated away from our experience. And that's what he's talking about. We shall be completely saved. Enjoy every last element of what it means to be saved. You see, in the Old Testament, God gave the Jews a ritual which was to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. It began when they were in Egypt. In the 10th plague, the Passover angel, and remember the very detailed description of what they were supposed to do. But they kept that, that Passover celebration year after year to remind them, much like we routinely observe the Lord's Supper to remind us. But the Passover celebration was really one of the most sacred of the celebrations for the Jewish people. In fact, you know, Jewish people today may not practice any of the other feasts, but they may still be practicing the Passover. On the first Passover that happened in Egypt, the original Passover, it was on the tenth day of the month. They, each family was instructed to go and select a lamb, not just any lamb, but the most choice lamb. didn't have any blemishes, any spots in it. And what we may not always remember is they were supposed to board up that lamb, but many commentators believe it, it, what that really looked like because most people that, that day, they didn't have like a barn or anything like that. So probably what most of the Israelites did was they, they took the lamb and brought it into the house where they lived. Well, you bring a cute little lamb into a house with children, you know what's going to happen to that lamb? It won't take a month. I would say by supper time, they've made a what out of it? They've made a pet out of it. And lambs are cute, right? I, I remember years ago when one of our daughters was getting her senior pictures, we were at a park, and there was a little girl with a professional photographer there getting pictures, and they had a little lamb there. And I was just like, wow, that, that'll just melt anybody. Here's a cute little girl and a cute little lamb, right? You know. But three days, that little lamb stayed in the house. But the fourth day was not a pleasant day because on day four, that lamb had to be killed. It had to have its blood drained. That's not a pretty sight, is it? You say, well, that lamb probably deserved it. No, you wouldn't say that, would you? That lamb hadn't done anything wrong. It was innocent. Then the father would take the blood and he would, he would use uh, probably hyssop or something like that and he would, he would then splatter it and smear it on the doorpost of the house. I somehow imagine, though, it probably wasn't stipulated that as he's standing there, blood's dripping down below as well. And so there might be a small puddle of blood above, down below, and on both sides. And how that reminds me of how Jesus was taken into the house of Israel in a formal way, when John the Baptist baptized him and Jesus said, Suffer to be so for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
And so not for three days, but for three years, Jesus walked among the house of Israel with signs and wonders and miracles, proving that he was the very Son of God, though most people ignored it. And at the end of those three years, he was taken and he was slain. He was slain in his innocence. He was nailed to a cross. His blood stained the sides, the head, and the feet of the cross. He was doing what no animal could do. He was literally atoning, paying the price, satisfying the wrath of a holy God over the sins of mankind. You know, when that animal lamb was slain during the Passover, its role ended. That was it. It was dead. However, the ministry of the perfect Lamb of God is not over. And that's the beautiful thing about all these imageries in the Old Testament. They, they mirror what they are supposed to about Christ to a point, and then there's a bursting forth of how Jesus is better than any of these Old Testament imageries. By the way, that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. You could say, what's the theme of Hebrews? Just these two words, better than. Jesus is better than all these things. The cross is not an ending in that way. The cross is a beginning. As Romans 5.10 that we looked at today says, there is much more. That much more is not because he died. If you look at the grammar of the verse, that much more is because he what? He lives. It's his life. This is why Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 7, it is expedient or advantageous for you that I go away. They didn't want him to leave, so he really had to nail this, drive this into their thinking. It'll be better for you if I do go. Well, before Christ could ascend into heaven, he had to arise from the grave, didn't he? And because Christ arose and returned to heaven, there's so many things that we could talk about, but let's just talk about the work of the Holy Spirit because Jesus made a point that if He didn't leave, the Holy Spirit couldn't come the way God had ordained it. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit Himself as the Comforter. Love that, term, that description of the Holy Spirit, don't you? The Comforter. Boy, how we need comfort in so many areas of our life. And the Holy Spirit comforts us in a way that no other human being, no matter how much they love us, could ever come close to comforting us. It tells us in Romans 8.16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Because if you are saved today, you do have the Holy Spirit inside of you. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit that is able to affirm and to strengthen your assurance that you truly are a child of God. Because there's a lot of things that could rock our assurance, that could shake us. But then there is just that still, small, quiet voice of God from within that reminds us, wow, I know I'm His child because this, wouldn't, this thinking wouldn't be coming to my mind ordinarily. That's not the way I used to think before I prayed and received Christ as my Savior. What is happening? That's the comforter living inside of you, working his influence outwardly. That's why you don't want to quench. You don't want to try to turn the volume down on the Holy Spirit in your life by your sinful acts. 
John 16, 13 further tells us that when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. You ever really like shocked yourself that you opened your Bible for your quiet time and reading some verses and something jumps out at you as you're reading that and you're like, wow, I've never quite seen that before. And that just really drives home and applies to your heart and your life. And, and, and do you walk away saying, wow, I'm a, I'm a pretty great biblical scholar. No, you're probably thinking, how did I come up with that? You know what that probably is? It's the spirit of truth guide, guiding you into all truth. Aren't you glad that Jesus arose and ascended and left and sent the Holy Spirit back in His place? We're not done. The Holy Spirit does a crucial work of bringing conviction into the world, according to John 16, 7. You say, oh, conviction is nasty stuff. It makes me feel bad. It makes you feel bad in a good way. It's a warning sign. It's the, the indicator light on your dashboard that there's some serious problems. And so we don't want to just ignore it. You know, like, hey, I'm, I'm glad that that alarm went off. I'm glad that, though it really hurts when I touch a hot stove, that my nerves work so I didn't leave it there for five minutes and, like, really burn up my hand badly. That's the convicting word of the Holy Spirit about us stepping aside and detouring from God's plan and path in our lives. The Holy Spirit also transforms our bodies into living temples to God. Listen, we're not our own. These physical vessels that we have that we call our bodies, and we ought to take care of them, but we ought to take them primarily good care of them because of this. The Holy Spirit lives inside here. When he teaches that in 1 Corinthians 3.16, part of what he's after later on, he'll say is, you know, you got to be careful about immoral sins in your life. You know, you're just thinking you're indulging yourself, but you're vexing the Spirit of God who lives there. You're polluting and bringing abominations into the temple of God because God's living inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Men, we would never think of, of, of meeting here and showing very provocative pictures of, of women up on the wall. You're like, wow, that, that would be so wrong on so many levels. It's not good anyway. But in church, hey, listen, every time you let something like that come into your eyes and you dwell on that and embrace that, you're bringing it to the temple of God where the Holy Spirit is. Everything we do, we need to realize the Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit also gives us power to witness for Jesus, Acts 1.8. He promised them that power would come unto them when the Holy Spirit would come. You say, I'm not, a, I'm not a good witnesser. Well, probably most of us are pretty deficient in that way. But it isn't about us. It's about the spirit, power of the Spirit of God who already lives inside of us. There's one qualification to share Jesus with other people, and that's to have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And every one of us that knows Christ as our Savior has that. So we have no excuses for not being witnesses. The Holy Spirit disperses spiritual gifts to individuals in the local church so that we can edify one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 7-11. The Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers by making intercession for us because we don't know how to pray as we ought, it says in Romans 8, 26 and 27. The Holy Spirit is responsible for the spiritual fruit and character being produced in our life, Galatians 5, 22-25. And on we could go. That's all what the Holy Spirit does. But the Holy Spirit's only here doing those things inside of you and me because Jesus rose and is saving us even more every day. That's a lot, isn't it? 
it's not bad to say that the resurrection offers us much more than the death of Christ, because the Bible says it. The resurrection could not have happened without the death of Christ. It's not an either-or. It's one building upon the other. The benefits of His resurrection only become possible when we identify with Him in His death. Romans 6.4 speaks of being buried with Him by baptism into death. That's identification. I'm identifying with Christ. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. He loves me and I want people to know I love Him. The point is to realize that the Christian life doesn't just end at the cross. Your life literally begins where Jesus' life was taken. It's a tremendous mistake to take the gift of eternal life and then bury it in the soil of time, thinking that you will dig it up when you are ready to leave this world someday. That's my ticket out of here. So much more than that. Jesus came that you might have life right now and that you might have it more abundantly right now. And so all of that I say to help prepare our minds and our hearts for what we're about to do, not just outwardly, but hopefully embracing our minds and our hearts as we take the Lord's Supper. And as we do, we're drawn to the cross at the Lord's Supper where our Lord's body was battered and bruised and His blood was shed. But here we find ourselves on Resurrection Day. And on this Resurrection Day, let's make sure that we look beyond the cross. Don't just look at the cross, but look beyond the cross. See beyond it the empty tune in your mind's eye. Don't just see the, the, the body of Christ left hanging on the cross. The cross is empty, and praise God, the tomb is empty. So let's make sure that we do that, and we praise Him from our hearts and worship Him for the much more that we have because He is alive today. Father in heaven, we thank you for your words. May it prepare us, not just for what we're about to do here next and receiving the Lord's Supper, but more importantly, how we go out of here, how we conduct ourselves, how we live. Lord, I just pray that we would just rejoice in the much mores that you have provided for us. What a privilege! What an exciting journey it is from now to the time you call us to be with you up above. Lord, help us, help us not to just traipse through the rest of our days here in this world with a sense of being burdened, but Lord, help us to delight as we really see the much more that you have for us right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.